Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our program, A New Playbook for Human Dignity, with former NFL player Ben Watson. Please welcome Delano Squires, Research Fellow in the Heritage Foundation's Richard and Helen DeVos Center for Life, Religion, and Family. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for coming to the Heritage Foundation and joining us for this event um, an event I'm really looking forward to. Um, I'm going to introduce our special guest, Benjamin Watson, in a few minutes. But just let me give you um, a little bit of context. Um, so yesterday, Monday, June 19th, was Juneteenth. This Saturday is June 24th, the one-year anniversary of the SCOTUS decision to overturn Roe. In between those two dates, we we see sort of the the long history of fighting for human dignity in this country. Um, And that will be sort of the central theme of our discussion today. The overturning of Roe versus Wade was one of the most consequential Supreme Court decisions of our lifetime. We now enter a new era in the pro-life movement where policy decisions have been returned to our elected officials. But that's not the end game. In the midst of culture wars in America, conservatives must ask the question, How do we build a society that pursues true justice and human flourishing from womb to tomb? So again, today our special guest is Benjamin Watson, former NFL tight end, writer, speaker, and activist. Uh, Benjamin is a college football studio analyst with the SEC Network, and he serves as VP of Strategic Relationships with the Human Coalition, one of the largest pro-life and pro-woman organizations in the country. Along with his wife, Kirsten, he is the founder of the Watson Seven Foundation, a nonprofit focused on strengthening families. They live in Georgia with their seven children. So, would you join me in welcoming today's guest, Benjamin Watson? Absolutely. Hey, I am most impressed um, that you got my wife's name correct. <laughs> you just earned major, major points by saying Kirsten and not no, Kristen or, or Kirsten. So I, I appreciate that. I understand. I know how protective you are of your wife. <laughs> of course. I've watched the SEC <laughs> Network before. That's an insider joke for any college that football is, fan. Yeah, you, can, you can YouTube that. <laughs> right, right, right. right. Um, so, again, welcome to the Heritage Foundation. Um, as a former NFL tight end, I think you can appreciate that today I'm playing back a quarterback for Dr. Roberts, <laughs> and I will try my best to get us into the end zone. I've had some of my best games with backups. Okay, so um, that's, a, that's, a good, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Because they rely on the tight end. They don't, they don't throw the ball way downfield to Randy Moss. And they, <laughs> they throw it to the tight end. All right, so, um, so one, happy belated Father's Day. Um, you, describe, you describe yourself as a man on a mission. Um, and you're an, an example of someone who lives out your mission sort of in the public square. So can you tell us what is your current mission in the pro-life movement and what is your vision for a culture of life here in America? Yeah, uh, thanks for that question. Thanks, Heritage, for having me. I appreciate all of you coming out on a Tuesday. <laughs> um, 
in Washington, D.C. I know that that is difficult, mm -hmm. uh, but I appreciate uh, the support and your willingness to come and engage in this conversation about uh, human dignity, especially as, as you mentioned, uh, Delano, uh, a year after uh, Roe v. Wade. I, um, I think that this is a very uh, important time uh, in, our, in our nation. It has been over the last year, um, and it will be moving forward. And so I think as people of, of goodwill, it's imperative that we uh, reimagine and rethink really what it means right now to be advocates for life. Um, not long ago, a couple years ago, uh, it seems like a lifetime ago, I was playing professional football. Hmm. Um, so it's only, only been three years, but uh, that was about 15 pounds ago and, <laughs> and, and several, <laughs> several concussions ago. And so um, I remember one day coming in uh, one night, it was late at night from a, across the country game and it was dark in the house and I came in the house and I turned on the lights and my wife, who always did a fantastic job of decorating our home, mm. had bought this um, piece that went above the fireplace. And it said, uh, do justice, love mercy, walk, walk humbly. Mm. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly. You recognize that from Micah 6.8. He has told you, oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to walk humbly, to, to love mercy and to walk humbly with mm. your God. And for us as a family, that kind of became our mission at that point. Um, we want to be a family of people who does justice. That that filters down to me mm. um, as my mission and how I try to order my life mm. is in ways that advocate and serve um, justice issues. Now, what do I mean by that? Because everybody has a justice. You know that. Right, right. <laughs> the people that hug trees got a justice. That's true. <laughs> everybody has a justice. It's true. Uh, for us, our, our idea of justice is rooted in the, the reconciliation and the restoration that we see in the scripture. Mm. And it all goes back to, as uh, John Perkins once said, getting humanity back to its original intent. Now, we won't do that this side of heaven. Right, right, right. But when you think about issues that correct relationships with husband and wife mm. or with families or with communities or correcting things that have been wrong, we see that all throughout scripture. And I've seen my mission really be to be a voice, number one, um, on a bunch of different issues, but also to encourage and advocate and to teach my family that that's what we are going to be mm. about in our communities. Mm. When we are wiped off the face of this, this earth as a family, we want people to remember us as a family of people, as, as a person, as a man mm -hmm. who loved justice, who loved kindly, kindness, and who walked humbly before God because that's why I believe we get the wisdom to do all those sorts of things. Mm. Well, thank, thank you for that. So, as I mentioned, we're coming up on the one-year anniversary of Dobbs, right? Obviously, the Supreme Court decision that overturned Roe. Um, I think we all remember where we were at that moment. You, you talk a little bit about that in, in the book. So, where were you a year ago? And what, what were your first thoughts when you heard that uh, Roe had been struck down? I was about to go to an airport. Because um, <laughs> I feel like I go there all the time. Uh, my wife and I were about to go to it, to the airport to fly to Dallas, Texas. Dallas was in a heat wave. Hmm. If you're from Dallas in here, you know it was like 100 plus degrees for 15 days straight in Dallas. And a friend of ours was having an outdoor event mm. during that time <laughs> and invited us to come speak. Right. So we were hydrating on our way to the airport. Um, and so text messages started coming through. And if you can take yourself back to that time, there was a leak a few months earlier that was unprecedented about what the decision might be. And so for me, seeing that it was, the leak was actually true um, really struck me. I think that must, much of my emotion had come from the leak 
the crying, the, the you know, just that emotional response. So when I saw the actual decision, I was more of a, in a state of, of shock. Hmm. You know, I, I honestly, in um, the several years that I have been involved in pro-life um, advocacy speaking, working with Human Coalition, um, I, I didn't know if that day would come. Hmm. And, and I was only in it for a few years. There are people who have been involved in this for 50 plus years. Hmm. People that are in the faith community, people mm-hmm. in medicine, people right. in politics, you know, people who are, are street you know, preachers, people who pray at the front of abortion clinics. I mean, people who have put their blood, sweat, and tears into this. Mm-hmm. And, and, and for me, I, just, I, I couldn't believe it. And then my initial thoughts after that were, okay, what's next? <laughs> you know, <laughs> and you mentioned that a bit right. um, in your opening remarks. What's next? Because there was a lot of confusion about what's actually next. You had one side thinking that abortion was totally over. You had one side thinking that the opposite. Neither was true. And even right now, as we sit here, abortion is still very legal in about 75% of the country. And so even if you are a state where you have a six-week ban like Georgia or you have um, a 15- or 13-week ban, 93%, almost 93% of abortions occur within the first 13 weeks of pregnancy. And so while, while the bans in states are, are good, I'm not saying they're not, they are a positive movement, um, it, it does not mean that abortion is over. And so my thought was, what's going to be next? How do we, as people who love and cherish life, how do we kind of turn off the faucet? Mm-hmm. Because many of those driving factors are, are still going to be there um, for women and, and for men making these decisions. Mm-hmm. So you you talk obviously in, in your new book about Roe, um, mm. you talk about race, and you talk about the future of a womb to tomb pro life movement. Mm. How, how would you define that that last part? What what is for for members of the audience you know who are solidly pro life? Yeah. Um, what do you mean when you talk about a, a womb to tomb pro life movement? Yeah. Um, for me, what I mean. Um, is that the human person has value and dignity um, from the moment of conception or fertilization until the moment they expire. Um, that, that dignity and that purpose and that value that we all have uh, d- does not change depending on um, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, um, stage of development, mm-hmm. um, uh, mental capability. Um, all the sorts of lines of delineation that we see throughout society that renders certain people as less than or greater than, depending on how they can serve us or how we, we see them as being independent. We are, we are, we're all dependent. I don't know if you, the last time you checked, I checked, I, I didn't pay a quarter for the air that I'm breathing right now. Mm-hmm. And so in, in, in a sense, we're all dependent, mm-hmm. um, but we are all uh, made in his image and we all have certain amount of human dignity. And so womb to tomb means that I, I value the life of the preborn child. I also value the life of his or her mother. Mm. I value the life of the of the man who is the father, whether he's there or not. I, I value the two million children that are in the global sex trafficking trade. Mm. I, I'll stand up for them. I, I value those who are incarcerated, even if they deserve to be there, because they still have human dignity. Right. Um, I, I value the person that's in end of life care. Um, even though I have to help them up the steps, <laughs> even though I have to feed them, 
like many of us did with our grandparents or, or elderly people who were at the end of their life and you had to actually sit there and feed them as if they were a child, their value is still the same. Right. And so the, the womb to tomb pro-life means, man, how do we promote human flourishing for all of them? How do we protect all of them? Um, now, it's different because they're in different stages, but it's just the idea that I'm acting out of this idea that these people have value and worth that is, is equal to everybody else. Hmm. So what, what <clears throat> message would you want to get out to conservatives um, who are not used to thinking about these issues, particularly around you know, pro-life issues, particularly around abortion, um, are not used to thinking about them necessarily in the context of, let's say, greater social spending, right? Yeah. So th- that's part of the argument you make in the book is, yeah. you know, <clears throat> we, we need to, to do more to care for mothers and, and, their, and their babies. Obviously, conservatives are some of the most generous people when it comes to, you know, volunteering at, you know, uh, pregnancy centers and, and yeah. doing that type of work. Um, but what would you say to someone who may say, may say, you know what, yes, I'm pro-life, but that doesn't mean that I necessarily want or want to spend more money more government money on some of these services. Yeah. The first thing I would say is I understand because the first thing you think of, where does this money come from? Right. Somebody got paid for it. Don't grow on trees. That's the first thing my mom and dad told me. Daddy, can I have some? They don't grow on trees. You better go to that jar and get some quarters out there. <laughs> <laughs> or go, go look in that couch for some pennies. Uh, so the first thing I say is I, under, I understand that sentiment. Uh, the second thing I, I say is that specifically right now during this time, and when I say this time, I mean in a post-row America, um, we have a tremendous opportunity. Those who are conservatives, those who, who um, have the label of everything that you just said, mm-hmm. and the idea out there is that these people in here do not want to spend, do not want to care for people after birth. They just care about babies in the womb. They don't care about anybody else that's dealing with those things. Now, we know that that's largely not true. For most people, it is for some. Uh, but right now, there's an opportunity to, to, I would say, cast a wider net mm. and to challenge ourselves. What I mean by that is there are several different issues that you may not call pro-life issues that I would suggest to you are pro-life issues. For example, um, there's, there's no you know, federally mandated um, pay leave. You know, about 21 percent of, of, of people, only about 21 percent of women actually you know, take paid maternity leave. Um, that's an issue that has come up as perhaps it sounds like it's a legislative issue. It's not connected to the pro-life movement. But if you speak to a lot of mothers, some of them would actually parent if they knew they weren't going to lose their job, if they had the ability to take some time off to be with their child. That's an example that may not seem like a pro-life issue, but especially in the last several years in, again, working with Human Coalition and um, being involved with some pregnancy resource centers, the <clears throat> the 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 common, I would guess, um, average abortion determined woman is in her late twenties. Mm. Um, she already has a child. She has at least a high school education, um, perhaps some college. Uh, she has uh, her housing is in flux. It, it, it may not be dependable. Mm. Um, and then there are the, the economic issues. And then there's a, a largely a relationship with the father issue. So if I'm looking at her and what impacts her, and in this post-war era, I want to impact her, then I have to think about things that are going to give her a fighting chance to make a decision to li- for life. Hmm. And I think that's the rub sometimes. Right. 
when it comes to conservatives versus progressives, the, the rub is the conservatives uh, lean more toward the, the individual choice and the baby in the womb where the, the progressives say, government, you fix everything. Those are the extremes. Mm-hmm. But I think that there's a happy middle that my hope is that pro-lifers will, will acknowledge these needs. And even when it comes to, I know we'll get to it, but even when it comes to a, a racial equity standpoint, you know, we just passed Juneteenth yesterday. Mm-hmm. And so part of what we talk about in Juneteenth is the fact that, you know, the four million emancipated slaves had about 0.5 percent of the national wealth when they were emancipated. And now their descendants have about three or five percent of mm. the national wealth. Mm. And so th- th- there are reasons for that um, that will take longer than our what we have to talk about. <laughs> I see your wheels turning. <laughs> But even when you think about that, that woman who is having an abortion, mm-hmm. black women are three to four times more likely. Mm-hmm. And so all these connecting and overlapping factors like that, you know, blooming onion at, uh, <laughs> at, at uh, Outback, Outback, Outback okay. that you peel back and you peel back and you peel back and you peel back and you peel back. And you say, man, all these overlapping factors. Man, what a great opportunity to at least speak to all of them. Yeah connecting back to the issue of womb to tomb right. and of preserving life. So um, you, you brought up race. It's, it's one of the central themes in the book. <clears throat> yeah. I know at times it can be somewhat difficult to have these types of conversations. Yeah. Um, the left is always willing to talk about race, sometimes in ways I think are not particularly helpful. Yeah. But um, I'm a believer in just addressing things straight on. So, you know, so, Many people have heard some of the sobering statistics. Mm. About 40% of the women seeking abortions in this country are black. In New York City, where I grew up, um, the abortion rate is about 50% for black women. Almost equal numbers of induced abortions and live births on a a year-to-year basis. Um, I I want to to read a short quote. This is my version of an audible, by the way. Um, <laughs> Which I actually recorded an audible. I recorded an audible book. And the only reason why I did it was because my wife made me. Yeah. So I did not want to do it. She's like, you need to do it. You need to record your book. I said, no. I don't like, I don't like talking and reading. <laughs> so this is, this, is, this is me trying to do, you know, my Peyton Manning, Omaha, Omaha routine. Let's go. Um, so so I, I want to read a short quote. This is from Gregory Carr, Associate Professor of Afro-American Studies at Howard University in this city, Mm. the mecca of HBCUs. Mm -hmm. Um, This is him speaking on Roland Martin's uh, show, Unfiltered, on September 5th, 2021. So I want to set the context. This is right after Texas's six-week abortion ban. And I quote, This ban on abortion will be a ban on poor people, Mm. poor black and brown women. The rich will get on their jets and terminate their pregnancies out of the United States. This is why the study of history is so important you will see an approximation of the Underground Railroad. During the years living after the Civil War, people broke the law. Africans like Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass stole themselves. They were federal and state criminals. You're going to see something similar when people fund folk to go out of state to civilized states to terminate pregnancies. Mm. So my question is, um, how would you persuade black Americans to embrace a more pro-life ethic when the most popular politicians and pundits and performers um, and professors um, so unequivocally support 
the party of abortion on demand. Mm, that's good. Well, first thing is I would push back on the loud voices. Okay. Because one thing we see in poll after poll, and even historically, um, recently things have changed from, uh, you know, the, the black community as far as this, the, the, the sentiment within the community as opposed to the voices that are speaking for the community. Right, fair. Two different things. That's fair. Um, are historically pro-life. Um, we've always been that way uh, in the way that we've had to take care of loved ones, in the way that we fought for family, even, you know, again, going back to Juneteenth, one of the primary things that happened after emancipation um, was finding families. Mm -hmm. They fought to find families. Mm -hmm. And I'm talking about taking out ads in newspapers. newspapers. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about church bulletins. I'm talking about walking hundreds of miles, getting on your horse and buggy, whatever it may be, to find families. Many of them never found their families that were, that were sold to different parts of, of the country. Mm. So family has always been important. Um, it, it is a lie, uh, or is at least irresponsible, to say that most black people um, are not pro-life in sentiment. Now, the, where we differ, and you know this, we've talked about it, is in how we describe that. The term pro-life uh, is, is not used in the black community the same way it's used in conservative white spaces, primarily because of politics. And so there's a sentiment of being pro-life. And actually, the policies of saying that I'm pro-life, mm -hmm. and that's where the rub the rub comes. Yeah. Um, you know, your question about um, how do I, how would I push back on the black community um, and, and encourage them when it comes to what politicians are saying? The first thing you have to do is, is debunk the myth. Mm -hmm. Second thing you have to do is is the facts. Abortion has never helped us. Abortion. On demand has never helped us. Mm. Poverty, a, ch a black child is still three times more likely to be born into poverty. A black woman is more likely to be parenting in poverty. Black abortion rates are higher. Economically speaking, or educationally speaking, um, black children are less likely to go on to higher education. Mm. And so while abortion has been available for black people, it has not helped us get the desired outcomes. Right. And so when people like the professor say those sorts of things. He's right in the sense that lower income and ethnic minorities, primarily black women and men, are going to be impacted because you're right. When you have wealth, you can go do so, those sorts of things. We have seen a tremendous drop in abortions in, in states that have bans. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to say even between July of last year and March of this year, it was something like 70,000 or so. But we've seen a huge uptick in places that have abortion tourism. Mm -hmm. And so those who are able to go to other states are going to be able to go. So he's right in that sense. Right. But the idea that a, a, an abortion ban is going to uh, hurt black folks, it just doesn't hold water. Yeah, and it, it's, when I hear words like this from the professor, when I hear people from the NAACP or the Urban League, yeah. uh, and, and I'm reminded that after Dobbs came down, um, the Urban League, the NAACP, the National Action Network, um, joined with Planned Parenthood and NARAL to send a letter to the White House basically demanding a meeting saying that black women would be the primary victims, quote-unquote, yeah. of, you know, the Dobbs decision. So in many respects, and I think this is the point you're making, these, some of these individuals and institutions believe that it is a worse fate for a black child to be born to a poor mother um, than to be killed in the womb. This is how, this is how, how perverted it is. And I think this goes back to, Donald, this goes back to just the, the, the context 
of, of America, mm-hmm. and especially when it comes to race. Um, there is an idea that if white folks have it, black folks need to have it too. Mm. <laughs> I mean, th- that's what it is. No, I understand. And, and, and the reason why it's that way is because of everything we just talked about on Juneteenth. Because a race is an issue in this country. It always has been. I don't know how long it will be, but it is right now. Um, economics is a piece in this country. Like, that is part of our, that is part of our, our, um, our DNA. Mm. And, and we can't deny that. Mm. And because of that is why you see a, a black, black leadership, those organizations that you talked about, say, hold on, it, they're going to be able to do it. We should be able to do it, too. Yeah. Without actually taking it to its logical conclusion that killing your children and having the ability to, to kill your children uh, is not a right, it's not a privilege, and it's not helpful for next generations. It hasn't helped us. You know, I, I think about Fannie Lou Hamer, mm-hmm. the civil rights activist, voting rights activist down in Mississippi, someone who was pro-life in the sense that she fought for all life and that she wanted um, human beings to thrive, that she actually brought in other kids to keep with her. She did not want abortion. The early black feminists did not want, the early feminist period did not want abortion. Right. But especially the black feminists did not want abortion. That was not our thing. We, we saw the, the error of that. Yeah. And I, I don't know where that changed. Part of his politics, part of his, part of his follow the money. Uh, you know, but I don't have all the receipts, so I'm not going to go that deep on that right now. Um, but 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 suffice to say, um, it's not. For, and that's part of the reason, honestly, why I felt like I wanted to write about wanted to write about this. I didn't want to write about this. That, that was not true. What I was about to say, um, I felt like I had to mm. simply because of the position I, I'm in um, and my experience. Mm-hmm. And the way that I'm coming at this is from an authentic place, but but a place that I, I don't think many are. And I know it's not going to make a whole lot of friends, but but it's it's important, yeah. especially for for Black America, mm. um, to hear this and, and to understand this. And, and again, we have to be careful when we allow certain people to speak for us because they have platforms. And we also have to be careful if we believe that what they're saying is what black people really want. Because if yeah. you speak to black women, yeah. which I did and I have, many of them do not want abortion. Right. What they want is equal housing. They want livable wages. They don't want to be paid 35% less wages for the same education as their white peers. Mm-hmm. They don't want that. Mm. There are a lot of things that they want and they need, but what we'll do is give them access to abortion and say it's not fair for them to have abortion instead of doing the harder work that this country has tried to do and is still trying to do, Mm. which is create justice for them. So I'll I'll say um, one thing, and I want to get to to my last question because I want to leave time for Q&A. We met at the March for Life. It was my first March for Life. I know you're a veteran. So I, (laughs) I saw you, I saw Coach Tony Dungy, and it really hit me after I left that, that march and I read some of the commentary in the public sphere attacking Tony Dungy for his pro-life stance. His, his work um, promoting diversity in the NFL didn't matter. You know, his work, you know, supporting fatherhood, adoption didn't matter. It was the fact that he was publicly pro-life mm-hmm. um, and publicly for traditional marriage, biblical sexual ethics. Um, he was basically likened to a Klan member. Um, and I think that speaks to where sort of politics and culture have moved. 
linking these issues, you know, abortion, a turn away from traditional marriage, um, to issues of race. And I think that is disappointing to say the least. Yeah. Um, but I, I wanted to save time for one last question because you, you talked about, and obviously abortion is not just a, a black issue. Yeah. yeah. But one of the, the, the statistics, statistics that I found is that the vast majority, I, I want to say at least 85% of women who seek abortions are unmarried. Yeah. Um, so I'd like for you to, to speak, you know, a little bit about what role men play, yeah. you know, in this particular movement and how can we and whether putting marriage before carriage would be a way to sort of naturally drive down the abortion rate um, while simultaneously and hopefully um, <laughs> raising the, the married fertility rate in the United States. Well, there's no doubt. Um, there's no doubt that, that putting marriage... I like what you said. I might write that down. Yeah, you, you got that. <laughs> um, I like what you said there. Marriage before carriage um, is, is, is 100% a way to change it. Okay. And it always has been, and statistics prove that. I don't think you'll find anybody who is even a pro-abortion advocate saying that, that marriage isn't, um, isn't desirable and that it will, it will bring down abortion rates because mm-hmm. that's factual. Um, marriage rates are important. I mean, for as a father, we just passed Father's Day. Happy, mm-hmm. happy belated Father's Day to all the fathers sitting here. But um, my father once told me that men are to be the priest, prophet, protector, provider of their homes. Amen. Um, I'm not going to give a whole sermon because we don't have time. We got one minute. <clears throat> but but within <laughs> you know that, preachers, but, but within that, there, there's spiritual leadership. There's uh, physical provision. Mm-hmm. Um, there there's advocacy and protection of your wife and of your children. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- th- there's there's this idea of going going before the Lord. And, and petitioning and covering your, your children. And so that's the calling of, of men. And what happens is, and this has been happening since the beginning, is evil forces, the evil one, will seek to disrupt, disrupt order. And anytime order is disrupted, anytime a man is taken out by his own volition or because of extenuating circumstances, things that he can't even help, anytime he is out of that situation, as phenomenal job as women do they weren't made to do what a man does Mm. and a man was not made to do what a woman does Mm. there's a reason why they're complementary and so when it comes to the issue of abortion and statistics you're right um one of the ways and I, i talk about this in the book as well is challenging men and again there's there's sometimes when a man just can't be there because of circumstances out of his control or some stuff that he did Mm -hmm. stuff that it was his fault Mm -hmm. um but for those who are able and those who just think that they can't mm. or those who perhaps didn't have uh, the greatest example or those who are uh, believing any other sort of lie that is being thrown at them and they aren't present, they think it's not important. That's where men who understand the importance of manhood have to challenge other men. Mm. There are some things that won't change until men challenge other men. That's one of them. A woman can say this as much as she wants to, but to be honest with you, it takes men to challenge other men. And that's why you see people like Coach Dungy being maligned, because it's a man challenging other men. Even when it comes to abortion, um, I heard it once said, uh, this doesn't come from me, um, that abortion won't, won't end until men stand up and take charge. Mm. And, and that's not just in the home, right? but that's when, when we talk about advocacy, we talk about leadership in communities. Mm-hmm. We talk about challenging the narratives that we've talked about during our time here. Mm-hmm. Um, much of that has to come from, from men. Oh, that's an excellent point. Um, I want to make sure we have time for questions and answers. Do we have any in the audience? 
Hi, thanks for being here. I'm Kristen Eichhammer. Um, I was an athlete, and um, I think that's a huge inspirational role that you now play in this kind of culture war that we're seeing um, around abortion. And so I guess my question for you is, just like um, younger athletes look up to you, pro-life um, advocates are now looking up to you. What advice do you have for them um, for getting involved in this movement and starting to, to shift and make this change? Yeah. Um, what did you play? What sport did you play? All right, all right. Soccer was my first love, actually. Oh, really? Yes. Um, there was a guy, if you're young in here, you don't remember a guy named Pele. Oh, yeah. Um, but but, but they, used to call, they used to call me Ben A back in the day. <laughs> I was bad. I was bad. Um, uh, piece of advice I always give is, uh, you know, for athletes, whether you're at the pro, college, even high school level, um, is kind of going back to your question about being, being a man on a mission. Understand your mission. Mm. What are the things that break your heart? What are the things that you're passionate about? And then understand, specifically when it comes to pro-life advocacy, um, it might be a lonely road. Prepare yourself for that. Mm. But there will be surprise friends and allies that you would never think would be there. Uh, One thing I've seen is even during my time in the NFL, I would write something or say something about um, pro-life, protecting children, protecting women, something like that. I would have coaches even come up to me and whisper, I saw what you said, and I agree with you. But there's this idea that we can't say these things. And so understand that you're not alone. Um, But the larger voices would try to snuff that out. The larger voices would try to say that that is not a popular opinion. And statistically, it may not be. But there are people who will come alongside you. And kind of like a fire that starts with a little spark, um, understand that when you speak up, it will give other people courage. So I would say, um, I always, I always tell them, educate yourself on what you want to talk about, be willing to count the costs mm. and be willing to be bold and courageous because you will inspire others and others will come alongside you. Mm. Yeah. Next. And then we'll come to Altitude sickness. Hi. Oh, thank you. Um, I'm Steve Luckett. Thank you very kindly. Um, you guys look great. It's like a Michael Mann thing going with the gray suit. <laughs> um, for anyone who's interested, there's a the piece about loving mercy. Micah, I guess, is on page 82. And in the interest of time, I'll just shorten my one question to three very tidy parts. Sir, could you please, for the audience here and online, go into blessing bags? Uh, just given an, an overview of that. And um, uh, your presence uh, reminds me of those three awesome former NFLers, the incomparable Howie Long, uh, the great Nate Burleson, and, uh, and Roger Staubach. So do you have a campaign maybe to announce anytime soon? Uh, <laughs> well, Nate Burleson's on CBS, ain't he? He is campaign, indeed. Yeah. He is indeed. Oh, and, That'd be um, nice. And, and, and my last question is, what, to address the elephant in the room, or perhaps the goat in the room for us Patriots fans. Uh, <laughs> He's good. Wh- He's good. <laughs> what, what, um, what have you learned from Tom Brady in focus, dedication, demeanor, mean, the whole nine years? You pretty much said everything I learned from well, him. Okay, honestly. all right. Okay. Uh, um, but but, but all those things plus, plus more, um, his dedication. So I played seven years in New England, six years in New England at first, and then I came back for the last year. And the mm-hmm. last year is when I really 
was able to get to know him because they put the two old guys together in the locker room. So I was sitting next to Tom for an entire year. Um, so we would FaceTime our kids. He FaceTime his. We wave and everything. And then we go out there and kick the defense's butt. That's true. Um, <laughs> uh, but but from him, I, I learned I learned. The most impressive thing about him is his ability to relate. And if you're not a football fan, just don't listen to this part because you're probably bored already. But the ability to, you know, not to make it too spiritual, but the Apostle Paul talks about becoming all things to all men so you might save some. And so that, and so Tom is able to become normal Mm. somehow to people who have watched him his entire life and played with him on video games. Mm. Like, Like he's able to be approachable and bring himself, quote-unquote, down to the level of an undrafted free agent rookie, you know, to connect with them. And all of a sudden, they they come together and they play with him and it lifts everybody's, you know, competition level. Mm. Um, Blessing bags uh, is something kind of unrelated in the book. But when we lived in New Orleans, Louisiana, uh, our kids were – we had four kids at at that point. Then we had five. I get it mixed up. <laughs> um, <laughs> but our kids, for the first time, saw homelessness. Mm. And, you know, right in your face in Louisiana, um, you know, even under the bridges, um, near the Superdome where we would go play, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty much everywhere. And I come home one time from practice, and all over the, our floor was all these toiletries. And I'm like, did y'all, did y'all rob uh, uh, Costco? <laughs> right, What's going right, on? Right. And so my wife had uh, all the toiletries out, and you know, you can imagine what's happening. They're putting them into these bags, assorting them, and they just call them blessing bags. And so they would put the bags in the car. This would happen when I was at practice for the most part or at work, and they would hand them out to people. And it was just their first encounter with trying to do something for somebody else. Mm. Um, and, and I think it really impacted them in a, in a mighty way. But it, again, it, it was led, led by my wife. That's awesome. Yeah. There's one here and then one here. <clears throat> Hello, Benjamin. Good to see you. Hey. Um, go Patriots. Anyway, so um, <laughs> I think we talked a lot about the narrative and the culture currently about being publicly pro-life, especially as an African-American, and I find it so fascinating. And I know that a lot of generational change starts with our young people. Um, and they might feel very discouraged, especially with all of the social media narratives that are really bogging down on them. So what would you say to young African-Americans about engaging with the pro-life culture and, and standing for life? Yeah. Um, thank you for that question. Good to see you again. Th- this young lady here at the March for Life was like going crazy on the I ran into her and then also saw you at Catholic University. So it's, it's good. Good to see you. Um, there's a young lady named Trina McGee, and look her up. She might be president one day. Um, <laughs> she is in Connecticut. She's an elected official in Connecticut. She's she's twenty something years old. Um, just just a um, she's a, she's a Democrat, pro life, and is just on fire. Hmm. And speaks with uh, authority and conviction. And she's in that generation. Um, the reason why I bring her up is just to say that there are people who are young, black and outwardly pro-life as opposed to even in here having pro-life sentiments, but being outwardly saying abortion is 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 not um, favorable for us and it is not something to be celebrated. Um, and they do it with a kind of a perspective, much of what I talk about in the book. And so uh, understanding your heritage, number one, what we talked about, and also understanding that there are several people out there who are speaking that language, um, not to feel isolated, and even going back to 
you know, the question I answered earlier, understand that you can be an inspiration for a generation. Mm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Hopefully we have time. Hopefully. Hello, everyone. My name is Charlotte Bergman. I'm here from Memphis, Tennessee. I am so happy to be in our nation's capital. I'm also excited because, you know, we have worked for years and years and years, and we were blessed to have a Supreme Court who recognized this issue and uh, basically overturn it at the federal level, but it is still happening in various states. But I agree with what you said about courage. Typically takes one person to stand up and say something. But right now I see in my country where there are conservative people who are standing up and are saying things and whereby the liberals uh, wanted to focus on killing babies in the womb. And yes, I said killing babies in the womb. They're now targeting our young people in terms of child mutilation, in terms of drag queen, queens reading books to them. They're going after our young people. And um, I'm glad because they are now beginning to hear us. We are beginning to be a voice that they're going to have to contend with. And our messages are having to be respected because of each of you. So I'm excited about what is happening in our nation, but I want to encourage people to make sure, and I know most of you in here vote, but the, you encourage your friends to get out and vote because liberal want, liberals want to codify abortion in our legislation, and we cannot allow that to happen. Thank you for allow, allowing me to speak. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Do we you say have, you're from Memphis. Um, Tennessee. Uh, Memphis, Tennessee, yeah. There's a... Uh, you know, Church of God in Christ, I don't know how familiar you are with them, but Church of God in Christ is, is the largest African-American uh, denomination, and they are strongly pro-life. And so, yeah. what you know, when you talk about the fact that, you know, black folks aren't pro-life, we may not get involved in the pro-life politics the same way, but this denomination, and in Memphis, um, there's the Kingdom World Mission Center, I believe, which is a, a large a large facility that is doing all the things from pro-life advocacy, maternal um, health, um, feeding people, clothing people. It's doing all those things in one in one uh, building, and so there's there's still a lot out there that I think a lot of people just don't know about. So thank you for that. Okay. Yes, um, I think we're, we have one question down here. Then we'll see if we can get you. There. Okay. 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 Dr. Myrtle Alexander, Institute for Academic Management. My, um, thank you so much for this topic and for being here today. My question to you is, could you um, point a little to the effect that abortions have on men? Mm. I know you talked about yeah. them taking the charge, but they're often left out of the equation when the act is being done. Yeah. And there is an emotional, physical, and mental component to having your child murdered, frankly. Yeah. That's, a, that's a great point. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, I, had a, I had a teammate, and I didn't know this until literally I started talking more about this issue, yeah. and this guy was my teammate. Way back in 2004, we were drafted together to New England, and uh, I recently spoke with him about a year ago, and he told me, man, when we were rookies, uh, my girlfriend was pregnant um, back home, and we were about to go tell our parents on our next break. And he said, we went to practice, and when we came back, she told me that she had an abortion. Hmm. And he told me about the struggle he's had to deal with. He, he's, he's since married, he, he has kids, 
but there's never a, a replacement for kids. Even those of you who have either had abortions in this room or you um, have had miscarriages in this room, we've had two of them, two miscarriages, and, and there's never a, a real re replacement for that, even if you have other kids. And he told me how he's dealt with that. And th there is a, a, a really silent um, group of, of men who are impacted by abortion. But anytime there's life involved with anything, because our creator breathed life into mm -hmm. us. And so life is different. Like life is, is, is special. Life has, has impact. And when it's taken, whether you do it flippantly or whether you do it intentionally or whether it's accidental, there are always consequences. And there are a lot of men who are suffering. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That's excellent. But even within that, if I, can, if I can say something else, I know men who have suffered and um, because of the folks around them, they've been able to turn that into a tremendous mission. Mm. And that goes for all of us. I think the hope in all of this is that there is redemption, there's restoration, there's justice, um, there's this purpose. Um, th there can be mission, even in all the misery that we've been through. Um, God can use that for, for his purposes. Mm. Yeah. That's excellent. Um, I think we have time for one more question. All the way in the back. Hi, Kelly Adams. I work for the Heritage Foundation. I am a huge fan, Mr. Watson, although I am a Steelers fan. It's really tough when you went to the Ravens. <laughs> it's okay. I respect um, the Steelers. I respect the Steelers. <laughs> okay. um, so you just talked about miscarriages and you talked about human dignity. Um, I Unfortunately, I had a miscarriage last, last summer at 12 weeks. Right. It was a little boy, um, Down syndrome. And one of the things that was really difficult for me was when I went to the hospital, I had to have a procedure mm -hmm. and they said, well, you know, it's medical waste. Mm. And um, I fought like hell to try and find a um, Christian or Catholic organization that would bury my child. Yeah. And, um, and I was able to bury him. The human dignity part is incredible. I have a, a headstone and everything. But I just wonder, how does that conversation go into the human dignity side? Because I believe that if most people knew that if you have an abortion or you have a miscarriage or a stillbirth and you bury them, it is this act of human dignity of giving them a proper place of burial that their life mattered. Um, and I, I just, um, sorry, I just would love to, I don't know if it's a question or just a comment, but something that I've thought about over the last year. Um, and I think there's a real opportunity for conservatives to have a, a place in this, that human dignity does start at consumption, conception and that we, we honor that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I'm sorry for your loss and all that you're dealing with. Uh, I mentioned we had um, two miscarriages and, um, this is where we were living in Baltimore, right up the road. I was playing for the Ravens and uh, we had two kind of back to back within a year or so. Mm. And uh, the first one was really difficult. It was around, you know, 13, 14 weeks, just like you. Um, hospital did about the same thing. DNC um, got rid of the baby. Um, then it happened again. And one of the biggest things that we realized, it was a different hospital we went to. This one was a, a, a Catholic hospital and there was an opportunity to have some sort of closure mm. for parents and some sort of burial 
And you saw this juxtaposition with how um, two different organizations treated life, but also the necessity that we have as human beings to have that closure and to honor the dignity. Uh, one thing that we don't do well, I think, as uh, for those of you who, who are in church, um, but just in general as a society, we, we don't do death well. We talk about the human person in the womb being a person all the way up until birth. But whenever there's a miscarriage or something like that happens, we don't quite know what to say. Like too many people are suffering in silence. And I don't know if this was your experience, but we realized that even through that, there were a bunch of other people around us that had the same issue, but nobody knew until we mentioned it because everybody suffers in silence. One thing we can do as as people of faith, um, as a a pro-life movement is to is to care for 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 women and for and for men going through that and offer those sorts of services. I think that that is imperative that we do that because it really is lacking because we don't we talk about it but we don't really care for it in that way mm. thanks thanks for sharing that yeah thank you um so uh, this brings our event to, to a close um i believe benjamin's going to be outside signing some books yes sir and um we're gonna have lunch Afterward, I'm, I'm glad Catherine shook her head because if not, I would be on the hook. <laughs> Pay for it. <laughs> and and, and I'm not paying for it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, so, yeah, please again join me in um, having you know, Benjamin Watson here for the conversation that we had. Um, please give him a round of applause as we move on. Sorry. <laughs> Thank you.